Today we're joined by Stephanie Gaver. Stephanie started her career at the White House under President Obama, supporting innovation in government efforts through the end of the administration. After spending a number of years in tech and consulting, she now works at Guild Education, an edtech startup where she leads strategy projects that help senior leaders make thoughtful decisions about the future of the company. Outside of her full-time job, Stephanie is also an investor and advisor to multiple startups and is focused on helping underrepresented entrepreneurs raise the capital they need to scale their business. Stephanie for joining the show this week really happy to have you on board um your sister Christina <laughs> why is I I was gonna call you Stephanie <laughs> but Christina when she told me about you I was like okay yeah we gotta have her on board like she's always like glowing about you saying all the amazing things that you're doing and you have a background in consultancy and you you know you've worked at the White House like you have a, like one of those CVs that's like oh gosh I gotta talk to her so um Tell me a little bit about like your background, like you were raised in Spain and then you studied in the States and can you share a little bit how you got started to doing what you're doing today, which is being an advisor to business leaders? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, first, thank you for having me. I'm super excited to be on your podcast. Um, yeah, so uh, as you already know, I was born in the U.S., raised in Spain, and then I had the opportunity to come back to the U.S. to study. Um, at the time, I really wanted to work in international development, and so I felt that being you know, in the D.C. area would be the best move to make at that time to go to school, hopefully get some internships, and then uh, make my way into you know, working in international development. Um, as I was studying in the U.S., um, I realized that there were a lot of domestic policy issues that I cared very deeply about as well. And so I decided to, to start honing in my policy interest into economic policy, budget po- policy, all at the federal, state, and local level. And so um, that is what led me to the White House, honestly, under President Obama um, as my first job out of college. I had the opportunity to intern there, and then I got a full-time offer when I graduated. And so it felt like an opportunity of a lifetime, and so I definitely had to take it. And while there, I had the opportunity to work with a team that was doing the uh, like government innovation at the community level. And so... That is honestly what really sparked my interest in technology and innovation. Um, I love that they were using, you know, technology data to really help communities and local governments uh, step up and be able to serve their constituents a bit better than what they were doing before. And so I was like, wow, I this is what I want to do. Like, I want to help, you know, local governments um, get smarter uh, be able to use like the newer technologies that we use on a day-to-day basis, but governments are still a bit behind. And so I ended up going to Airbnb after the White House, um, and I was supporting the policy team, helping the the political campaign scale across the East Coast in Canada. And so if you're not familiar with Airbnb, Airbnb is, you know, a home sharing platform. It grew very fast. And so the company grew faster than the policy that was 
uh, meant to allow Airbnb to exist. And so that created some tension, especially at the state and local level, um, because policymakers just didn't really know how to handle Airbnbs. Like, what are the, what are the rules that we should set around, you know, this, this new technology? Like, what are the rules that we should set around um, allowing people to have, you know, guests enter their home and charge for it? And so it was honestly a very interesting experience. Um, and I learned a lot about being on the other side of technology where you're trying to push something that's very innovative, yet government is still very much behind and they're trying to understand like how to keep up and how to sort of protect constituents um, while still you know, enabling innovation in their cities. And so post Airbnb, I knew that I wasn't quite a lobbyist. I didn't really want to do government affairs, but I really liked working with businesses and especially startups that are high growth. And so I decided to pivot a little bit and go into consulting so I can get um, a better skill set that was more strategy oriented versus just policy. Um, but I still wanted to stay involved with startups. And so I did some public sector consulting in the beginning, and then I moved into uh, commercial consulting. So I worked with um, pretty large fortune 500 companies helping them do um, like big digital enablement tech innovation work um, and at the same time founded uh, the my firm's uh, first pro bono program for underrepresented minority startup founders so I still wanted to do work with with startups I still f wanted to find a way to to make technology more diverse because once you work for a big technology company you realize that you know, from the sweet, sweet level to their board, to, you know, their investors, it's pretty, um, it lacks a lot of diversity, right? Um, everyone has the same backgrounds. I've heard this. Everyone has the same mentality. Um, they have a very, in my opinion, limited understanding of what government does, for instance. And so um, I felt like you needed more diversity at every level in order to make a difference and to create products that were more inclusive and to create products that could look at issues from many different perspectives. Um, and in a way where you would just have less tension once you're like growing at, a, at an expedited rate. Um, and so I love the, the, the program is called Scale Up at Deloitte. Um, and we were able to help about 40 founders who were just getting started with their companies, um, who were all black and brown people first-time founders for the most part, people who didn't really have a lot of wealth, right? And they didn't have a lot of capital to just go out and, and start their own companies. And so they were looking for, you know, different accelerator programs that would help them get up to speed and hopefully get a really good pitch and get in a really good place where they could go out and raise some capital to continue scaling. Um, and so honestly, one of the funnest things I've ever done. Um, after that, I went into a startup myself. So now I work at Guild, which is a, an ed tech startup uh, based out of Denver, but with offices in New York and San Francisco. Um, and I mainly work on strategy. So I, I support leaders as they're thinking about what does growth continue to look like for this company? Where do we invest in next? How do we refresh our go-to-market strategy so that it actually reflects um, you know, what the company is doing and, and how we bring our solution to market and how we want to grow. Um, and so I've, I've had the opportunity to, to really support 
I think technology and innovation in a, in a variety of ways from like the policy perspective to like very early stage startup of two people in a PowerPoint to a 1300 person company that is like growing so fast and has to figure out how to scale in a way that's very efficient. Wow, that's so interesting. Thank you so much for that. It's yeah, I mean, I just feel like what you said about um, the lack of diversity every level within you know, the entrepreneurship, like tech space is so true. Like I remember hearing, mm. I think I heard the stat, like a friend of mine was a, she was a startup founder and she said that she's black and she said that something like less, like single digit investment was being given to like black women mm -hmm. at, in that industry. And it's like, you're not even giving the leg up, right? Like, mm -hmm. you know, you can't even get the money to even be allowed to fail, let alone, you know, try and even succeed with your business so it's so true do you feel like it's changing like is it or is it not changing fast enough is there sorry to add to that as well because I, yeah. I see like at the moment there's a big push to have diversity inclusion in workplaces and I know in my personal workplace you, you take courses to learn about it obviously I know about it but they, they they give that to everyone in the company to sort of learn about it and they have we have a group and things like that so you see companies are trying to push for it but I was sort of wondering if you think those sort of um, groups and um, uh, I don't want to call it schemes, I don't know if that's the right word, but initiatives, um, those yeah. initiatives are sort of working or is there something more that could be done to actually have true diversity, I guess, rather than sort of have like the poster um, person at, at the front, front and center to make it seem okay. like. Yeah, I mean, you're completely right. And honestly, from my perspective, it's just not changing fast enough and we need diversity on so many levels, right? We need diversity at the in the investor space because ultimately they are the ones who have the check writing power um, that will enable startups to, to move faster. We need more founders from different backgrounds. We need more black and Latinx founders, right? Who have the capital and the resources and, and the time and the willingness to start companies. And then we need more diversity within the early stage employee population of a startup, right? So in the US, um, it's almost like a badge of honor to be one of the first 50 to 100 people to join a company, especially if it's a fast growing startup. Um, and also those are the ones who are able to, to create the most amount of wealth, right? Because once that company goes public, they are the ones who are benefiting the most, right? They had, they took pay cuts in order to get, you know, a pretty decent equity package. Um, and so there's a lot of wealth that's being created in the startup world, but it's not inclusive of all. And so those people who are able to take the risk of starting a company tend to come from certain backgrounds and tend to already have certain networks. And so if you come from a wealthy family and you went to Stanford, you have a safety net to go out and start a company and be in a position where you are not getting paid for several months, if not years, so because true. all of the, mm. the, the capital that you have available is going back into your company. Black and brown mm. people just do not have that right now. Um, and so that makes it very difficult for people to want to, you know, go out and, and start um, their journey as an entrepreneur. And same for investors. Investors, the investor community is one that lacks a lot of diversity in the U.S. You'll see that everyone comes from the same schools, um, you know, your Harvard, your Stanford, your Wharton, and then everyone also, you know, has a very similar background. Um, it's a very like niche, you know, sort of world and it's very difficult to break in. Um, and there are a lot of efforts that are that are being done in the U.S. to to create some more diversity. But of course, 
if you have basically the same profile of a person as an investor, they're more willing to make a bet, especially at such a risky stage of a company, on someone that has you know some similarities to them, right? And so if you are a white male and you went to Stanford and now you're an investor, and you meet you know another white male who also went to Stanford, you're gonna be you're gonna say, wow, this person is like yeah. brilliant. I can trust that if I put 100k to 500k into their company, like yeah. I'm gonna get you know 10x returns. Um, whereas you yeah. know they may see it a bit more risky to put that same amount of capital into the hands of you know a, a black founder who doesn't come from those networks, who is a first time founder, and you know may or may not make it. And so mm -hmm. I think it's, you know, the the startup world and then the VC world is is a VC is a very difficult asset class to be successful in. It's very very hard to make bets on companies that are going to make it because most companies do fail. And so I think that leads to a lot of bias and who gets funded and who does not get funded. And ultimately, that bias leads to only a certain type of founder getting funded and then a certain type of team getting established. Mm -hmm. And so diversity yeah. doesn't really come into the picture until the company is like, you know, a few hundred people in and they're like, oh, wow, our entire C-suite is, you know, white you know, yeah. executives are, yeah. you know, our founding mm -hmm. team looks the same. We need to add some diversity. Um, and that's sure. when they finally go out. It's almost like out. an afterthought. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah, yeah. it's, it's I, almost like a, it's a very difficult cycle to break. There's a lot of work mm -hmm. being done, but you have to hit it from so many different levels, you know, from getting more people totally. to join early stage startups to encouraging more people to start their own companies. And then, you know, mm -hmm. also supporting more investors, yeah. right? Like enabling yeah. more people with check writing power to go out and, and sure. be able to, to deploy that capital into startups. Totally. So what inspired you to kind of focus, you know, on uh, minority communities in your work? You, like, as I said, you're doing such amazing, amazing stuff and you could have easily like gone after the, I mean, I'm sure you're, you're doing fine, but you know, you could have just gone, okay, I'm going to go into Wall Street or I'm going to, you know, just, you know, collect the bag, whatever, but you're doing something that is really honorable and it's, and it's really helping people. So like, yeah, what, what inspires you to do this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, honestly, it, it's a ton of fun, but there's just so much work to do, right? Like when I mm -hmm. look at tech right now and, and I look at who are the, the founders that people look up to, they're all white men. Yes, there are, a lot of them are college dropouts, but that just is not applicable to everyone, right? It's like it's mm -hmm. college dropouts, white men who went to Ivy League schools, who come from you know somewhat wealthy backgrounds, and so their products look the way they, they look like today. We've had issues with, you know, Facebook and a lot of social media products because of who created those products, right? And, and that trickles down to pretty much every like other vertical as well. Um, when there are issues of, of lack of inclusivity into the product itself, it's because the people who, who were behind the creation of that product only had a certain perspective. And that says a lot about the, the industry as a whole. And so I would love to see that change. And I ultimately, I do think that technology is a really good tool to use to solve a lot of social issues. One of the reasons why Airbnb was created is because hotels were too expensive, right? And it didn't allow everyone to travel. And so now you have more options. That's still, there were still some issues, right? Like 
um, there have been a number of issues throughout the world of uh, black guests, you know, getting their reservations canceled mm -hmm. because, you know, a host did not want to have them in their home and, you know, made some assumptions around how their home would be taken care of. And so that is that is like an issue that I think having more black people on the business side, they would have thought about that earlier. It wouldn't have become an issue later. And so I think that there are a number of social issues that we could be fixing, you know, housing, transportation, like mm -hmm. climate change. Like there are just so many issues, but you also can't just have one perspective trying to fix it. You need multiple perspectives mm -hmm. trying to put in the work to fix that. And so that's going to require a lot of change and a lot of diversity to come in at the tech side from all of those different levels that we just talked about. Um, and honestly, that that's what keeps me energized. I think it's, it's a good combination of the policy work that I've done, but then like having a big interest in technology and innovation as a way to solve problems. It's funny because I was reading, reading about um, how Airbnb started and how it was literally just these three guys in, in their apartment. And uh, like you said, it was ho the hotels were too expensive, so they decided to rent out a mattress on the floor. So I was thinking when you when you first were speaking about it earlier as well, um, do you find that these the, the simplest ideas, do you find that, that those can be like really held back by sort of government and policy? So personally, as an investor, I actually really love a simple product. I love a product that is does not require the user to have to get super smart on a whole industry to understand how that technology may benefit them. I love a product that's just like, oh wow, like I experience this issue every single day. Like taxes are so expensive and they never arrive on time. And so I always have to, you know, request something like super early so I can make it to the airport, right? And now we have Uber. And so I love those products that are just so straightforward that it doesn't require the user to do a lot of thinking to understand how it might benefit them. I don't know that that is something that um, is difficult for government to understand. I think government just generally and across the world is just behind, right? Like yes. they're behind. They have so many other social issues to fix that they're still thinking about problems from like five years ago. And technology just moves at a really, really fast pace. Like right now we're talking about Web3. We're talking about crypto and NFTs. And government's like, I don't like, right? Like most, most policymakers yeah. are like, I'm still trying to keep up. Like I'm still trying to set some parameters around Airbnb in my city. I can't start thinking about yeah. people wanting to sell JPEGs and, and, you know, like I don't have the time and the mental capacity and, and the resources. Yeah. And so I think what, um, what does make it difficult, right. For, for, in a, for, policymakers to get, you know, on to get up to speed with technologies that there's a lot of if you think about like the Silicon Valley mentality, it's very anti-government. And so I think that there have there the narrative around government is always that they slow down innovation. I think that if there was a better connection between the two, um, there would be a world where we can start to make decisions at a faster pace because everyone understands the technology. Um, technologists are thinking more about constituents, all of them, and how their product may affect them negatively, not just positively, um, instead of just thinking about their business and the milestones that they want to hit. 
And so I think having more companies that are that are just a bit more conscious about the impact that they're having um, is could greatly benefit government. And I think there would be more partnerships that can be put in place. But the second you enter the conversation with technology is horrible or government is horrible, I think it just creates like some tension that is not useful for either party. And it just puts like constituents and users right in a really difficult position because you as at a, as a personal you know uh like hobby or interest you want to enjoy this this technology and and the innovative economy maybe in crypto but you don't know right like what the the sort of not consequences but what the the aftermath may look like in a few years from a government perspective because government's not talking about it or they're just not smart enough about it and so it does put users in a very very tough position and it makes people lean more towards one or the other like you know when i think about the people i work with at the white house and ndc who are so brilliant and no policy in and out like they don't like a lot of the new technologies because they, they just don't like how they're rolled out they don't like how they're rolled out without thinking about thinking about it from many different perspectives it's like a kind of like a small-minded like oh technology is going to fix everything which is not the case right but then like when you talk to people who have spent their entire lives in tech they're like we can fix so many problems right through this you know these so many apps and it's like well you know like yeah like they definitely make life a lot better um there's so many technologies that are making life so much better for everyone and are creating more equity for a lot of people but that's not the case for everything um and you still have to be thoughtful of you know what the what the impact the total impact of your product on communities across the world yeah no it's true because i remember that with you know uber and airbnb as well you know they have a lot of people in that sort of uh, government affairs world corporate affairs i mean you said yourself mm -hmm. that you were working in that within airbnb to try and mitigate some of the like i don't want to say social harm but yeah there is there is this kind of it, i mean we're i'm in berlin there is this there's there's this tug of war even with berlin with the with the city and airbnb and mm -hmm. i see ads all yeah. the time on youtube with airbnb <laughs> saying basically lobby your government so yeah. that we can you can um allow airbnb you, you can I, I think there's a way for you to like um instead of like go, registering your home by, you have to go to some like special town hall, you can just do it online. Uh, because mm -hmm. like Germany's notoriously behind when it comes to digitization of anything. And so, yeah, they're like essentially paying money to, for advertisement to, so that the people of the city are lobbying the Berlin um, government itself. So it's really interesting because I definitely see like the, the, from a consumer perspective, it's great that I can just quickly get a cab. Even as a black person, I know that black people have faced issues with getting general taxi, you know, that's still an issue. Mm -hmm. I even experienced yeah. it as well, not too long ago. And so having something like Uber is a godsend, you know, where you can just yeah. be like, oh, I'm not gonna be judged to, uh, based on my skin color, whether I'm gonna get this ride or not, because, and even if I am, if the Uber drivers, whatever, I can report them, you know, right in my mm -hmm. app and, and they yeah. can be dealt with. So, you know, I, I definitely see both sides, sides of it because, it, you know, the person mm -hmm. that, that they're also affecting the jobs of the general taxi drivers, yeah. et cetera, and whatever. But 
I think as long as we live in this capitalist world, it's not going to change. <laughs> I think yeah. the entire economic system needs to be different. Otherwise, you know, when when we, when you have to work to make money to put food on the table, mm-hmm. it's just it is what it is. I'm sorry, exactly. but yeah. If you were to pick one, <laughs> what sort of piece of tech would you say is uh, getting that either getting getting that balance really well? That's a great question. I think um, when I think about industries that are doing it pretty well, um, I think the two that are that are top of mind for me are fintech and edtech. Fintech has done a tremendous job of bringing tools and bringing access to a lot of people, right? Like the fact that if you think about it years ago, we probably had to go with our parents to the bank so that they could deposit something. It's massive that we can do so much from our phones. It's massive that we have so much information available to learn about financial literacy. And I think that is really important, especially for black and brown populations who are not, you know, in many cases, not benefiting from the wealth that, you know, their families created, you know, hundreds of years ago. And so I think that a lot of fintech apps that allow you to invest and to save um, into, you know, access your bank and to even like make transfers internationally, which is like massive for immigrant populations, like not having to go in person, you know, to make any type of like transfer um, is super important, is very impactful and makes the lives of, of many people a lot better. Um, I think the other and it shows they were thinking of those people as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah, exactly. When you know, when you think about um, what large banks and financial institutions had established years ago, it was for the wealthy, right? It was for people who wanted to start investing, but they had at least ten thousand dollars to start investing, and so it wasn't for you know someone who was younger or someone from a different income bracket who maybe only had $50 to invest every month, right? It's for a completely different person. And so I think FinTech has actually done a lot to create some more uh, democracy around just financial investments for everyone. Mm -hmm. And there's more and more of that happening around the world. If you look at Asia and if you look at Africa, which is like a massive, Mm -hmm. like Nigeria is a massive tech, a massive hub for tech. Like they're doing a lot of work around that. And it's amazing, right? You're just creating more opportunities for people. I think the second industry that I'm always super excited about is ed tech. Um, because education, especially in the U.S., has always been extremely expensive. Um, I think when you're in Europe, you're like, you know, people can get like two, three masters and they find a way to afford it and there's a decent amount of financial aid. But in the U.S., that is not the case. School is extremely expensive um, and not everyone has access to it. And so there's there's a lot that's being done to improve um, access to education for people, whether it's you know, students coming out of high school or it's adult learners, people who are already in the in the workplace um, to get access to, to school, to quality education. Um, there's uh, a company that I'm really excited about called Emil Learning. Um, they're a Series A company based out of LA and they're uh, giving um, high school students in the U.S. access to AP classes, regardless of what school they go to. So in the U.S., um, uh, depending on your zip code and depending on the school you go to, you get access to certain classes that are 
um, I guess considered more difficult, but allow you to get, you know, uh, I guess more credits to go into like, you know, college in the U.S. because um, you're taking sort of like the the more like the difficult level um, class for for that subject matter, which is not something we do in Europe. Like in Europe, you just take like everyone takes the same classes and, and you move on. But, you know, U.S. is so competitive that, of course, they had to create like another another layer of difficulty on it. And so these like they're basically allowing like students from anywhere in the U.S. to take AP classes um, for, you know, a pretty minimal uh, like monthly fee. And that is amazing, which, you know, that means that if you or not, if you're going to a school that doesn't allow you to take, you know, physics or, or chem, you know, the AP chem or, or physics, but you really want to take that so that you get your chances of getting into your target score higher, you can take that. And, you know, and so I think that there's just a lot that's being done that um, sort of is pinpointing like that one, you know, issue that like these massive institutions created when they were first established because they were established for basically, you know, white middle class families and they're fixing that and they're making it much more accessible for anyone to be able to, uh, you know, to invest or, or, or get the education that they want. And so those are always like the industries that I'm most excited about because I'm like, wow, there's so much so much needs to, yeah, yeah, that's the future. And so much needs to be fixed and so much needs to be done. And I think that honestly, education is going to look very different in like 10 to 10 to 15 years. I don't think that people are going to put as much emphasis on just getting a college degree. I think it's more around getting the skills that you need and then like being able to execute on those skills, like right as fast as you can and learning on the job. And if you are going straight into like a tech job, it's going to be about you being able to keep up with tech and being able to upskill yourself so that you can keep up with the roles and, and the needs in that environment. Mm -hmm. um, but the fact that we can do it in a way that's accessible to all is the most important part, in my opinion. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And just just to... Um shift gears a little bit uh, I remember you were saying that so many startups fail mm -hmm. and you know this can be a barrier for like many people on many levels right especially people you know black and brown people what is the most common sort of simple mistakes you see startups that is, that's stopping them from reaching longevity and what advice would you give to, to them to, to overcome some of the challenges mistakes and make it easier and is there specific sort of guidance or advice that you give to people you know of black and brown heritage Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I would say, um, you know, from my experience working with founders, one of the the main one of one of the main um like mistakes, I guess, to put it in a way that, that they make is not getting a, a product out there fast enough so that they can start testing and getting feedback on their product. Um, whenever I speak to founders and they're like, yeah, we're, we're spending months like internally as a team, like going back and forth about how we can make this product perfect. It's like, you're just not going to make this product perfect, right? Like you're not going to do this in a WeWork conference room. Like you need to get a beta version, a simple version of your product out into like, you know, to your beta testers and you need to start getting some feedback from users on what they like about the product and what they don't like. And you need to get really smart about who your competitors are and what they're doing, how they're doing it, what's worked and what hasn't worked. I, you know, any founder who sort of comes in and is like, I don't have competitors. I'm like, impossible. One, 
to also like that's not a bad thing it's great to have competitors like that is that is part of like the economy like that is why users should always have options it's a problem when you don't have an option right and so I think for a founder you should look at it from the perspective of okay great so these are their like you know a few other companies within this category that I'm competing against they've been able to raise this amount of capital. It sounds like they have like, you know, X, X number of users. That's cool, right? Like what's the profile of their users? Like start to think about it from like your like competitive intelligence like standpoint. Like what do they have and like what can we do and how can we do it better? Or how can we sort of tap into a different uh, part of the market, right? Like we're all competing in this market, but it doesn't mean that we have to like target the same clients. And so yes. I think, you know, those are like two of the, the main issues. And then I think the third issue that is extremely important is just having a good team. Um, many times early stage founders want to hire their friends. They want to hire acquaintances. They want to sort of do some favors. And when you're starting a business, you don't have time to do any favors. Like it is about getting top talent into your company that can hit the ground running. Um, you don't need a startup in in a startup, and so you need you can't really hire those people that need a lot of training. You just need to hire people who are very scrappy and who can make it happen. And so, um, having a, a good team, being able to create a good culture around your team, because that's another thing, right? There are a lot of companies and a lot of founders that are just go go go, but they just forget that people are people, and we're not just about work. We have personal lives that we'd like to enjoy. Um, and so you still need to create like a work-life balance and give them meaning when they are at work, but then allow them to enjoy their life outside of work. Otherwise, they won't be able to bring their best selves every day. Mm-hmm. And so to me, like the, the top three things are truly just getting a, getting a product out to start testing, um, ensuring that you're, you're getting a, a good team, um, to come on this journey with you um and then what was it it's like understanding the user oh understanding the uh, understanding your who your competitors are and what they're doing and how you differentiate from them that kind of connects to another question i had as well um and being that there's a lot of statistics about startups everyone knows that um so with those founders um that you've spoken to or that you know of that have had that mentality of like not wanting to get that better that that beater out um as soon as they can which is the best thing to do and they're sort of holding back and they want to get it perfect and they're, they're really uh focused on that but they they have the team um they have they have the funding they have the strong idea um if if there's someone uh that is in that sort of um situation or experience um but they're sort of they're holding back on getting out there what advice would you sort of give um given that they have all those other things going for them mm-hmm. yeah i mean if you have all those things going forward for you you're in a pretty good spot right if you have the funding and you have the team and you have the idea um i think you know tech is it is about making risk startups in general it's it, it's it's a risky business right it, it's pretty risky to to leave your cushy job that you know most people have to go on to this like entrepreneurial journey um and to to bring on people onto that journey knowing that you could like 
you could all fail and then you'll have to let a lot of people go, let a lot of investors down, let a lot of customers down. You know, you may be embarrassed to, you know, in front of your friends and family, but like, it, that's honestly like the worst that could happen, right? It's like the worst that could happen is that you tell your family, hey, like it just didn't work out. And then you go and you get another cushy job <laughs> until you have another great idea. <laughs> And you help your team get another cushy job, right? Until, you know, if if that's what they want. I think we are, like, we're in a pretty, like, privileged place, right? Like, if if you are, if the worst that could happen is that you just have to close out your startup and then go get another job, like, that's a pretty good place to be in. There are a Mm -hmm. lot of people who don't really have those opportunities and, and cannot think about life that way. They have other major responsibilities and have never had the privilege to say, let me just, you know, go, uh, go build my vision for the world. And so I would tell those founders to really think about, you know, what's the worst that could happen? How much risk are they willing to take? Um, I think one thing that is really important to know is that, um, not all startups have to move at the pace at which you're, Ubers and your Airbnbs and your Facebooks moved, right? Like those are companies that decided to raise capital and therefore had to move at a certain speed because they had investors and they had a board to respond to. You can you can build a sustainable company and you can move at your own speed if that is what you want to do. It means that you know you're not you may not be valued at like five billion dollars right within five years but that's okay because that's not what you want if you want to create a good product sell that to you know like a average size population of of customers you know have a stable team like no one's gonna get super rich but you're gonna be happy you're gonna be content you're gonna be able to pay the bills and and go to sleep every night knowing that you're doing something you love then do that Um, I I, I think that one of the problems right now is that tech has sort of taken this, um, like there's like this narrative around like building fast, you know, getting wealthy very quick, like having to to bring your product to everyone on every single corner of the world. And that's just like, it doesn't have to be that way. Like you can be the Ben and Jerry's, right? Where like, this is a company that is a private company. They, they're making amazing ice cream that people love. They grew sustainably. And like, you know, you, you don't have to worry about like these crazy goals and milestones that you have to hit. Like you're just doing things in a repeatable, sustainable way and in a way that makes you as a founding team happy and your your employees happy and your customers happy. And so And you still might get bored out at the end yeah, of it, you know, exactly. that happens a lot, right? You you exactly. actually they actually come to you and go, Okay, we're gonna buy your company, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and so it just doesn't have to like there I think we just sometimes put these really crazy pressures on ourselves and it doesn't have to be a case. Like I would say like for anyone, just think about the journey that makes the most sense for you. Um, you, you just don't like, you don't have to follow the path that everyone else has followed. And in fact, if you do it and, and and that was like, not the path that you wanted to follow, you just may fail even harder and faster than you would have, if you would have picked the path that was right for you, which was maybe like to grow your company in a more sustainable way. Would you say it would be quite, it is an important thing to have an advisor like yourself? 
Absolutely. I think it's always great to have someone who is objectively looking out for you as a founder and then your company and someone who also maybe doesn't have any like stake in it, right? Like if I'm an investor that I'm probably going to want to push you a bit more because I want you to be successful because I want to see the return on my investment. But if you don't have like if you're not going to your investors, if you're not going to your employees, if you're simply going to someone who is in the ecosystem that cares about your business and cares about you as a person, um, they I think they will be able to serve as a sounding board because ultimately you have to make the decision. Um, I will say I always tell founders to meet other founders like other founders should be your best friends because they've experienced exactly what you've experienced. And so I think going through accelerator programs and, you know, hanging out with other founders and maybe co-working spaces or different events is a really great way for you to connect with someone who is maybe building your industry or a different industry, but has experienced what you've experienced and maybe they're like a couple steps ahead. Um, and they'll be able to give you some really great sound advice because they've already made a few mistakes. They've learned from them. They have more mistakes to make, right? They have more big decisions to make. And so having, you know, that support system is so important because the burnout in this, industry is is wild right like it's just so much for anyone to have to work around the clock to think that you know they have to get pay their employees and return investments to their investors and like there's just like a, a lot of pressure on one person or, or two people and so you do want to find those people who have your back who have your best interest in mind and who are always going to be willing to give you some pretty like straight up like um feedback or some good advice um, and, and support you along the way, whether it's, you know, closing out your business or raising another round of funding or whatever it is that you decide to do. You want to have people who just have your best interests in mind um, in your corner always. So you're, nice. you know, you're obviously always advising people and, you know, where do you see yourself in a few years time? Like, do you ever see yourself finding your own company or are you just like... <laughs> No, I'm, I'm okay with that life. I've seen too much burnout. I want to stay objective. Because, yeah. yeah, you have so much knowledge and <laughs> insight into the industry. I could definitely see how, how you could be, whether a founder yourself or yeah. part of an yeah. early stage company. Is that something that you see yourself doing in the future? I don't know. We'll see. I think if I had a great idea <laughs> that I wanted to implement, I would maybe do it. But I have a ton of respect for founders. Like... It is, you're in a very like comfortable spot when you get to work with founders, but you're not the founder. Cause you're kind of like, here are some resources. You have all these big decisions to make. Like I'm here for you, but ultimately you get to go to bed and, and you're not like crunching numbers in your head and thinking about all the people you may disappoint. It's a very, very difficult spot to be in. And so I just have a ton of respect for founders and I, and I don't, I don't take it lightly, right. To go on to that entrepreneurial journey. And so if I did do it, like I would, I would have to have like a really good idea and just be pretty confident that I can get at least, you know, a couple of years of, of standing up this business. But, um, honestly, I think in, in a few years, I just, I see myself probably working at an earlier stage company. I'd love to be like one of the first, like 10, 12, like really getting really scrappy, um, on, you know, helping, uh, build a business, develop a cool product, bring that product to market. Um, and hopefully at that point I'm, I'm working for, you know, black and brown founders, right? Like hopefully there's more out there. There are more people who are, have been inspired to, to build companies. 
Um, and hopefully, you know, all of us have the option of, of working for, for really brilliant black and brown founders who want to make an impact. And I think that is what I'd love to do. Um, and then also just continuing to invest. Like I want to continue to invest in black and brown founders. I want to deploy like as much capital as I can, you know, into like these amazing ideas and people who want to, to make an impact in the world and also do it in a way that's a bit more inclusive than like how it's done, you know, how it's been done so far. Um, so if I can do those things, like I'd be super happy. You mentioned Scrappy a couple of times now. Mm-hmm. And uh, what do you mean by that? And what are the characteristics um, or unique skill sets that you that you see that a founder needs in order to be successful? Just mm-hmm. just thinking about people that would be listening in thinking, you know, I've got an idea or or they maybe don't have, even feel confident in their skills and abilities. Like what are the things that you've experienced and seen that you think stands out that usually leads to success? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for both the founders and then their founding team, you have to be willing to work in a lot of white space, a lot of ambiguity. Um, you have to problem solve very well. Sorry, I thought you meant when you said white space, I was thinking. <laughs> I was thinking you meant, I was like, is in like white spaces. I was oh. like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, like realized you didn't mean that. I was like, oh yeah, no, I can imagine that's like, sorry, you yeah. In that space. No, that's no, so no. Funny. I completely Consulting Dargan. Sorry, like... I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. You can cut that part like, out if oh, you want. And then I thought, no, she means, she means white spaces and ambiguity. So funny. <laughs> anyway, um, carry on. I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, you have to be able to problem solve very well, right? Um, to, but also be excited about problem solving because you're going to do so much of it. Um, you have to be excited about learning about a lot of different aspects of your company. If you're a founder, you are sales, you are operations, you are product, you are engineering, <laughs> you are marketing, uh, your talent, <laughs> HR, like you are so many different things. And even when you are one of the founding team members, you're going to have to wear a lot of hats. Um, and generally as you go, like even myself, uh, at a, at a pretty decently like large startup, like there are times where we're asked to do stuff that I'm like, okay, I'm not necessarily an expert in this, but I'm going to get smart on it pretty quickly and see how, how we can execute. Um, luckily for me, there are people in leadership who have been doing this for many years and so they can always guide you in the right direction, but you just may not have that in an early stage startup. If you're like a few months into the company, you're going to have to wear a lot of hats. And so you do have to be pretty excited about that. Um, budgets are always tight in the beginning. So you're not going to have an opportunity to hire, you know, one amazing marketing person, one operations person and one talent person. Like sometimes you are combining some of those roles and sometimes you're doing it yourself. And so... If you're excited about being someone who wears a lot of hats and um, if you're excited about being someone who is sometimes fine with just good, like you just can't make everything perfect. (laughs) And so if you are going to let, you know, perfection be the enemy of good at that stage, it's it's going to be hard for you because you're going to move a bit slower than someone else who's just a bit more like, all right, this is good. I'm going to put it out there and then we're going to fix it as we go. Yeah. you know, it's, it's going to be hard to compete with that person. Um, and so I would say like, that's honestly how I would describe scrappy. And I think scrappiness just comes from anywhere. And personally, I also think that 
black and brown people have always been very, very scrappy. Like we've always been very resilient. You know, if you think about immigrant communities, immigrant children have been translating things for their parents for years. So they had to go get smart on something very quickly, <laughs> like taxes or like school stuff. And they had to get super smart on it, translate it for their parents, advise their parents, you know, get the thing done and then move on and continue doing, you know, what they had to do as like a student or like a young adult. Like that is amazing. And so I think like, that is what I'm super excited about, just seeing more diversity in tech in general, because like we're like some of the scrappiest, most resilient people there are. There's no reason why we shouldn't be founders and be building like amazing companies. Like if there's someone who can like figure it out, like that is like someone who comes from like an immigrant background or, you know, a, like a lower socioeconomic background or, you know, someone who's just faced more challenges. Like you just, you spend your whole life figuring out, like you could totally figure out like a company. You're, you're totally right. And just, you know, going back to, I feel like capital is like such a big part of it. Like I know there's many other layers to it and it's, you know, starts with education, starts with uh, even just, uh, black and brown people seeing themselves in that position. But I feel like so much of it is down to capital and getting access to funds. Mm -hmm. And are there any specific like funds that are um, targeting or at least like available specifically for black and brown people? Because I just, you know, I think in the film and uh, creative industries like that, you know, Netflix have an initiative where they're like giving a million mm -hmm. pounds to filmmakers in Africa and like, you know, very they're very much investing in like their diversity efforts and trying to have a, you know, more inclusive sort of industry. But is there any specific like initiatives mm -hmm. like around capital specifically for um, within tech that you know about? Yeah, I just, it's sure. ju I just feel like it's such a big issue. And I, yeah, I, you know, it, I it really a lot of is. things come down to money, really do. Mm -hmm. yeah. It really does. Yeah. Um, and I think that's why I am so proud that there are a lot of funds, um, early stage funds, especially in the US that are mainly looking to back black and latinx founders so you have um rare breed ventures uh overlooked ventures concrete rose um just to name a few camelback um those are funds that are you know on specifically looking to just invest in overlooked underrepresented founders um and then you have a lot of other funds who uh you know, after the, the murder of George Floyd decided to raise, you know, like a, a, a separate fund to go out and invest um, more, you know, more specifically in black and brown founders. And so that's, you know, like, and those are like all the big names that, that people know. Um, and then lastly, you have accelerators, you have, you know, found, Founder Gym, for instance, that also has um, a focus on supporting uh, a more diverse population of founders. Um, and so they're doing a lot of work to, to support founders in the earlier days, not just through capital, but also the resources and the knowledge that they need to scale a company, you know, at that, you know, at that stage. Um, and then, you know, one thing that I think is really great now is, is equity crowdfunding. And so if you don't want to go down the route of, raising capital from uh, institutions and from investors like VCs, like you can now raise from, from the crowd, right? Like you can raise from people. And so you have WeFunder, you have Republic, these crowdfunding platforms that allow you to get your business out there, tell your story, talk about the impact 
And then you have people who don't have to be accredited investors that maybe can only invest like $500 or $200 or $100 into your company and they can be a part of your journey now. And so I think there are more and more options and like slowly there's there there are more options that are being built that will create more that will democratize access to capital for founders. Mm -hmm. It's still tough, right? It's a still very a tough process for all of those things. Like it's very competitive, um, but I think it's slowly changing. And, and so founders don't just have to be, um, you know, limited to raising firm VCs that, you know, just may not have an interest in, in them mm -hmm. as a founder or, or in their business and like what they're building. Um, and you also have options, right, for people who decide to not go down that route and they're like, you know what, I want to I wanna have my customers as investors, right? Like, mm -hmm. I, you know, if my customer really, really likes my product, like, they might be willing to put $100, you know, in, as an investment down into my company. Like, that mm -hmm. is awesome. Mm -hmm. And you can do that, you know, through equity crowdfunding. And as, as all these options become more and more popular, I think we'll, we'll find ways to create... Um, uh, more options for founders, but also options that don't put them in a tough spot, right? Like where they're not like diluting, you know, ownership in the company by a ton every time they're raising and they still, you know, just have like enough ownership. Like you also don't want to get to like the finish line and you realize, oh, wow, like I just have all these people at my cap table. Like I don't have, you know, barely any ownership in this company. Like I, I did put myself in a kind of a tough, tough spot because I wanted to raise capital and move as fast as I could. And so I think that, um, you know, little by little, um, there are just more options being created with, uh, mm -hmm. you know, underrepresented founders um, in mind that are also in the best interest of them. And so I'm, I'm super excited mm -hmm. about that as well. Yeah. And is there sort of like one piece of advice that you would give founders um, just on the journey? Like obviously keeping motivated, yeah. <laughs> being, being a startup founder is, is one, one thing I can see as being a challenge. So like, yeah, what advice would you give to, to stay motivated, to keep, keep going? especially as a black and brown person, you know, it's hard living in the Western world as it is mm -hmm. dealing with just everyday microaggressions and racism. I can't mm -hmm. imagine it constantly facing that when you're, you know, whether it's that you're trying to raise money or you're, you know, you're, you're, you're feeling um, uh, sort of uh, challenged by your circumstances because you think, oh, that person's getting access and I can't, et cetera. So like, yeah, how do you, what advice would you give for people mm -hmm. to, to keep going really? Yeah. Yeah, I would say control the controllable, right? So like the controllable is um, taking care of your body, eating well, trying to get some, you know, a few hours of sleep every night, doing stuff that's good for your mental health that will allow you to continue going and going for as long as your journey is. Um, keeping people around you that are, uh, that you feel inspired by and that support you and that aren't just trying to, you know, in some way take advantage of you and, and trying to get something for free from your business. Um, that to me is controlling the controllable is, you know, staying off of social media. If you feel like some of the, the narratives that you're seeing are putting more pressure on you and are affecting your mental health negatively versus positively. I think there's like a ton of really good resources online. And, um, if you go on, on Twitter, you'll find a number of different threads that are honestly super helpful, but then there's also a lot of content that is not helpful, right? Like if you go on, on Twitter, you see that, oh my God, everyone around me is raising all this money and I can like barely get a call with an investor. Like that's not going to make you feel great. And so, you know, controlling the controllable would be like, all right, I'm going to just ignore that stuff, right? I'm going to follow like the people that I want to learn from. 
Um, but I'm not going to, you know, immerse myself into this world where I feel like I'm always behind and, um, you know, I, I'm not doing enough. Like that is just, it's going to make you, uh, question yourself more than motivate yourself. Um, Mm -hmm. and you know, I think the, the taking care of, of you as a person is super important because that's something that culturally you could establish for your company and your employees and you can help with a little bit of that burnout as well and then ultimately like you know but as a result you're creating a better culture for your company so by doing something that you wanted to do for yourself and so that is that is a controllable right like that is something that you can control is the culture that you establish for your company you can't really control the market you can't really control you know uh customers and like the feedback that they have on your product and your, your company may fail but at least fail with a good culture, uh, at least fail happy, right? Fail in a, in, in a way that, um, you know, you'll look back and say, wow, that was a great experience. And I learned a ton from that. Yeah. Um, so I think Rather that than, would be, oh, glad that's over with. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I think, you know, that would be my main piece of advice is just, you know, whatever you can control, do it. And like the things that you can control, you're just going to have to go with the flow. Um, and you're going to have to take every challenge head on, like one by one, um, but if you are happy and healthy and you have a good team to do it with, like you're in a, you're in a pretty good spot. Hmm. So, yeah, I mean, you've shared what advice you give to founders for staying up. So how do you personally stay up? How do you keep going? Yeah, kind of similar to what I just talked about. Um, I, I, I love the work that I do. I'm super passionate about working with underrepresented founders, um, in a variety of ways. And so, but also in order for me to do that, in order for me to be on calls, like, you know, like a a big percentage of my day, I also have to be able to be my best self. And that means, you know, going to bed early, doing a mini workout every day, walking my dog, hanging out with, you know, like my friends, you know, talking to my loved ones. Like it's all the things that, that make me happy and that make me be able to be my best self when I'm around other people. Um, cause it is hard to be in high stress, like environments all the time. It's really hard to be in like business mode all the time. It's hard to code switch all the time. Right. And that is very applicable to black and brown people in the workplace. And so if you want to, you know, survive and be able to like, you know, it's a marathon, not a sprint. Like if that's the mentality that you have, like you have to take care of your body and your mental health Mm -hmm. and, you know, leave all the negativity, uh, like put all that aside and and leave that behind Um, and only surround yourself by things that are really good because there are going to be moments where you find yourself in a situation that is not great and it's not great for you. Um, And if you want to navigate that in the best way, you also have to be your best self. And so I would say like the same advice I give to others is advice that I try to, you know, take every day, which is like, all right, like, you know, go to bed early. Like, don't think about this too much. Um, Bring your best self, like eat healthy, like all those things um, Mm -hmm. so that I can like keep going. Otherwise, you know, I'm just brewing my body, my mental health, and maybe also as a result, my career, because, you know, I just couldn't keep up with all of it. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like you hear a lot as well, like people say, oh, it's not enough hours in a day, I've got so much to do and all this stuff. I don't have time to go on a walk, or I don't have time to do this at the weekend or X, Y, and Z. Um, would you say prioritizing those things 
does eventually make it feel like you do have more time in a day or would you say there's other ways you can sort of stretch out that day a bit longer and and get more more of what you want to get done sort of done I guess mm -hmm. yeah I mean I would say it's about working smarter not harder like I when I reflect back on um the earlier years in my career I realized that I spent a lot of time doing like stuff that was a bit useless like there there are ways to work smarter in everything that you do there are ways for you to get a ton done within the you know eight nine hour days that you're putting into your full-time job and then hop into your side hustle and still be super productive and then move on i think it is um you know, prioritizing also like some of that, your personal life is also important, right? Like saying instead of, instead of, uh, doing some extra work this evening and then also browsing the internet for like maybe an hour and a half of, you know, just looking at stuff that was like not very helpful or had nothing to do with the work that I was trying to accomplish. I'm going to spend 20 minutes working out or 20 minutes going for a walk. Uh, something that's actually good for, for my health. And so you realize that you're just, you are prioritizing your head and so because you want to go work out you're like okay i have to finish this work faster which leads you to spending less time doing stuff that is not useful and does not like has nothing to do with you know that work you're, you're working smarter not harder and then you are able to accomplish all of those things like to be honest i work with parents and i'm always so impressed with them i'm like i don't know how you are managing this home and a kid that is probably studying from home right now um you have to be a teacher and the cook and the nurse but also a full-time worker and they do it because they're just really really smart about how they prioritize their time when they're at work they're like go 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 and if this is not a priority for today or for this week i'm not going to do it i'll wait until it has to get done um because i have other priorities and so i think it's it's hard to get to that mindset when you're younger and you don't have like a family to take care of because you're like oh like the day is long i have so much time like you know i can just sit here on the internet on my computer all day um and so you have to make like a very conscious effort to say okay i'm gonna like step away from this for a second so i can go do something that's good for my mind and my body and then if need be i will come back if not i'm going to continue joining you know enjoying my evening mm -hmm. um and so it's, it's hard but it's all about finding what works for you because there's also a lot of like information out there about how to work smarter and how to prioritize every single second of your day and it's like okay whatever like i don't fully believe in that either because it, it tends to be so extreme it's like wake up at five in the morning yeah. and go work out and it's like that does not does not sound enjoyable for anyone and so you know i think it's like also finding like what works for you and like your body and your mind um and just making a conscious effort every day to do it and knowing that like some days like you're not going to do it well and that's okay right like you can always try again the next day yeah yeah well thank, amazing. thanks yeah thank you so much conscious of time we don't, want, we don't want to take any more of your time um it's been really great talking to you um yeah. where can people find you like i know you have a medium page can you just share like your url and any social media that you where people can contact you yeah. by whether they're budding founders themselves <laughs> i mean obviously you have like, <laughs> you're busy so like you can give advice to everybody but yeah if people want to kind of stay connected with you what would be the best way of them doing yeah that? twitter honestly i'm always on twitter uh, my dms are open if anyone wants to you know dm me to ask a question or just chat or whatever it is 
Um, and then I tend to share a lot of resources on Twitter. I'm a bit behind on writing for my sub stack. So I'll say that Twitter is probably the best medium to find me. Um, and yeah, it's Steph under, underscore Gaither. So easy to find me. Great, great. We'll put that in the show notes as well. Perfect. Well, thank you so much awesome. for yeah, joining us. It's, I, we, I'm always like, I can keep talking to people going on and on and on and on. And I feel like I only just scratched this. We only just sort of scratched the surface with, you know, what you have to do, uh, what you do and what you have to say as well. So thank you so much. And um, yeah, unless you have any questions for us. We'll yeah, thanks for having <laughs> we'll me. This was here. so much fun. Yeah. yeah, I'm super excited for, for your podcast. And the other episodes are awesome. And so definitely oh, continue great. what you're doing. <laughs> Yeah, Thank yeah, you no, so we're, much. yeah, we're trying, we're trying. No, we're really excited by all the people that we we have coming up. Well, yeah. thanks so much yeah. for um, joining this week's episode. Of course, thank you. <laughs>